What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we're joined by Dr. Gwen Adshead, one of Britain's leading forensic psychiatrists who has spent over 30 years providing therapy inside secure hospitals and prisons. And she spoke to Linda Yu about her new book, The Devil You Know, which seeks to challenge our common understandings of evil and change our minds about how we view violent criminals and offenders. It's a really fascinating conversation, and if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for the book in the podcast description. But now, let's go to the episode. Welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm Linda Yu, an economist and broadcaster. My guest today is Dr. Gwen Adsted, who's here to discuss her new book, The Devil You Know, Stories of Human Cruelty and Compassion. Gwen is unusually both a forensic psychiatrist and psychotherapist, and she's worked in the NHS for nearly three decades with violent offenders. And a forensic psychiatrist is someone who addresses how a society responds to and treats those people who break the criminal law. So warm welcome to you, Gwen. I want to just start off by asking you, in the book you write about, early in your career, you were at a psychotherapy department meeting when the chair asked, who wants to see a serial killer? There were no takers except for you. Why did you decide to work with violent offenders? Thank you, Linda. Well, that's a good question. Well, I think that I, the truthful answer is that I was interested in the law and I was also interested in moral philosophy and ethical decision making in medicine. So I was drawn to a branch of psychiatry where there would be a lot of ethical dilemmas. So uh, just as you said, how should we as a society treat people who've broken the criminal law, done something very scary and frightening when their mental health was disturbed? So I was drawn to work in that field of work. And I also became interested just in really wanting to hear from the people themselves how they felt about things, how they saw it from their point of view. So in the, so the book is really about an invitation to readers to come with me and see the world that I see after someone's been convicted, after someone's been sent to prison, after a judge has sent somebody to a secure hospital. And I just really wanted to invite people to come and hear the kind of work we do with people who've done horrible things when they've been mentally unwell. How much of a toll does this work take on you? 
Well, I think it would be foolish to think it doesn't take a toll at all. And it's a very important part of the training that we do as psychiatrists, forensic psychiatrists and psychotherapists, that we think about the emotional demands on us of working in this world. But the emotions that we have to deal with are complicated and they're often to do with feeling sad. And they're often to do with feeling a sense of sometimes a sense of despair or a sense of frustration that we can't do more. So, for example, I've just come from some work with some colleagues where people were describing a sense of frustration that they couldn't do more to help someone who they think really needs help, but there really aren't the resources to do the work. So you've told us why you wrote the book. It's quite an unusual structure. I enjoyed it immensely. But just do say a word about why you wrote it with Eileen Horn, who is a writer and dramatist. Yes. Well, I, I wanted to write a book about the work that I do as a forensic psychotherapist for a general audience. But I, the way that I tried to write it, I'd written quite a lot of academic stuff before, but I couldn't really get the voice right. But Eileen, of course, as a dramatist and a professional storyteller, was someone who was able to see how we might be able to do this. And she was also very important in helping me construct composites of the, of the literally hundreds of people that I've seen over the years so that confidentiality was preserved. So no single individual was actually used in reality that every, every character is a composite of many people like and similar to the person described. And it was very important in terms of privileging both the perpetrator, but also the families of victims who've been affected by the perpetrator's actions. I would say it was very effective because even though I knew they were composites, I still felt it was a story arc in every chapter. So I want to get to some of those. But first, I want to just sort of um, help our listeners understand this area a bit more. So you describe that people can be both fascinated and repulsed by evil. So tell me about the title of your book. Oh, yes. Well, I... the the, the I wanted to call this book, or the rather when I was first working on it many years ago, when I first had the idea for a book like this, I wanted to call it a short book about evil, partly because I didn't want to write a long book, but I, I, but also because I wanted to try and get to the sort of pithy, pithiness of the interest that I know that everybody has. One of the reasons that I wanted to write this book is that I know that I work in a world that everybody is interested in, everybody has an opinion on. So I had come to understand evil as a state of mind that any Anybody might get into in the right circumstances and if the right risk factors are, are in place. So we talked in we talk in the book about, about a kind of bicycle lock metaphor, uh, which is actually a, a, an idea developed by a wonderful colleague of mine called Peter Aylward. But we developed it in the book as a way of trying to understand how risk factors for violence can come together and unleash something terrible which can sometimes take both the perpetrator and the victim a bit by surprise. But I, I think, you know, really the, the main reason for wanting to write this book was because I think one of the reasons that people are interested in evil is that they know deep down that probably each one of us has the potential to do something terrible if all the, if all the risk factors lined up right. And that if you understand that, then it you can approach these people with a different kind of eye. Yeah, I found that bicycle lock metaphor to be absolutely um, just very insightful. And I was struck by a couple of the stories where the trigger to open the lock 
was perhaps something like saying so long instead of goodbye. So I think, you know, kind of it'd be useful just to hear a bit more about the common risk factors for violence. And you write in the book, putting it bluntly, most violence in the world is committed by young, poor men. Yes, that's correct. There are very few societies across the world where the majority of violence is not carried out by young poor men. So the first two risk factors for violence, the commonest risk factors are being young and male. But of course, that doesn't take you very where, anywhere very quick in terms of trying to assess violence risk, because that's a lot of people. And of course, a lot of young men who will never be violent in their lives. So, so being young male is, is a kind of statistical risk factor, but it's not, doesn't really tell you anything very much. Now we know that substance misuse, alcohol and illicit drugs, particularly cocaine, anything that makes you paranoid, basically, amphetamines, another drug that makes you paranoid. These are drug, drug use is a very significant risk factor for violence. So if we were serious about doing something about violence, we would do a lot more for, for alcohol and drug use. And we also know that getting into the kind of antisocial habit is a risk factor. If you're someone who starts to use violence early and you get into the habit of using violence to solve your conflicts, then that is a, obviously a risk factor. It makes you more likely to use it in the future. But the last couple of risk factors are rather personal ones to the individual, and they may involve unresolved memories of childhood trauma. And we, we have increasing evidence that exposure to childhood adversity is a powerful risk factor for later violence. But sometimes the last... So the last number in the lock may be something to do with unresolved trauma, maybe something that's exquisitely painful for the, for the, for the perpetrator and just touches something. It touches the depths before it touches the surface almost. And I, I, I think that often we meet people, um, particularly in secure psychiatric settings, we meet people who've been in very disturbed mental states, very paranoid, intoxicated, very frightened, very agitated. And then the victim does something. This is not to blame the victim, of course, in any way, but then the victim does something quite unwittingly that puts the perpetrator just over the edge, unlocks the violence, and then anything can happen, particularly if the perpetrator is armed. So... Mm. Yeah, it struck me that um, that you you stress that um, you know for homicide murder the relationship um, with the victim is you know there tends to be a relationship. So this is just one of the I think many interesting areas of this book. I'm going to move to another interesting area, which is what is the definition of a serial killer? What are some common traits, and how rare are they? Well, that's, it's, it is very interesting, a very interesting topic because I didn't know before Eileen and I started writing this book that there actually is a kind of definition which is about number. And the number is three. The magic number is three, which is, you know, you, you, you want to, you want to imagine the committee that sat around deciding that, you know, one is not, two is not, three, the magic number for serial killing. Very strange. But three is the number that is univer, that is uh, internationally recognized. And that's the number that people who do research on serial killers use. So there's quite, so on that basis, there's quite a number of people who kill three or more people. This doesn't, of course, include spree killing where people 
will include multiple people simultaneously. That's a completely different other kind of homicide. And it's quite difficult to get good quality data about serial killing because it's possible that, particularly across time, it's possible that we may be more able to detect them than we used to be. So it may well be that the internet, the development of and the development of digital footprints and um, the use of internet and satellite tracking and mobile phones and things have made it much harder for people just to disappear. Whereas in big, big countries like the States, like Russia, like China, possibly in India too, it was easier. You might be able to kill and then vanish and disappear in another state a long way away and nobody would know. And then you could kill again, depending a little bit on what the reason for the killing was. But as far as anybody knows, and the data is really woolly, so I, I don't want to hold, I don't want to be held to this too closely. But as far as anybody knows, serial killing is less frequent than it used to be. But we still do get people turning up very occasionally, killing lots of people. Interestingly, or not, quite a number of serial killers in the last 10, 15 years have been healthcare professionals. And that's probably because of access. It's because you've got, when you've got access to vulnerable people. Yeah, you describe in the book deceitfulness, lack of emotion. Um, these are traits associated with, was it with ser- serial killers or just more generally with violent offenders? Oh, no, I would say that deceitfulness and lack of empathy in a kind of particularly cruel state of mind, these are the kind of features that we associate with the concept of psychopathy, which is a kind of very severe personality disorder. Now, we don't know, because we don't know all that much about serial killers, because they're quite unusual, we don't know if they're all would meet criteria for psychopathy. It's possible. But we do know that not all violent offenders are psychopaths by any means. In fact, the best data we have suggests that probably no more than between a quarter and a third of people who are repeatedly violent would meet criteria for psychopathy. So, and that's and that really fits because a lot of violence is, is as you, we were mentioning earlier, is to do with relationships between people and you know, strong, painful emotions like anger and fear. They can come out and they can be very powerful drivers for violence. But the vast majority of people who commit acts of violence wouldn't be described as either deceitful or callous or unemotional. And, and interestingly, there have been quite a number of uh, review studies um, which have not found a relationship between violence and lack of empathy. So a bit unexpected. Well, the, one of the statistics that you give in the book was that the United States is nearly 70% of all serial killers, but England came second with 3.5%, and then it was South Africa and Canada accounting for about 2.5%, and China with about 1%. I'm not going to ask you why the US dominates, because in the book you write, no one really knows, and you've gone yes. through some of the kind of different factors, but it just struck me that yeah, there was such a big gulf between the United States and, and other countries. I think I probably um, want to ask you next about treatment, um, because yeah. another quote in the book, which really st- uh, struck me that you wrote, is that a patient had said to you, you can be an ex-bus driver, but not an ex-murderer. So do tell me about the treatment. Yes. Well, and I, I think the reason, as you can imagine, it was a, a memorable quote because, and, and it came up in a context where he and I were discussing what the purpose of the treatment was. And because clearly there's no kind of treatment that can change the past. But 
you know, what most psychotherapists who work with violent offenders would argue is that we're not really thinking about changing the past, we're thinking about changing the future. And what we're doing when we're working with violent offenders is we're hoping, yes, to improve their mental health, but I uh, know because that's good for them. But it's good for them because it will also hopefully go to reduce their risk that actually if you improve people's mental health, if you improve their sense of well-being, that may be a powerful contributor to, for example, to not misusing substances, to perhaps being less angry or being less frightened. And those things together might build a much more positive, pro-social kind of relationship with other people. And that's the kind of state of mind that we think is very important to reducing violence risk in the future, that sense of being pro-socially connected. So in the book, we describe I, we describe a number of different people where the major shift was often quite small, but it was about having a different take on where I fit in with other people, the sense in which I can belong in the world with other people. So that's why the treatment is not about giving up your identity as a murderer. You're not going to be able to give that up. But the question is, is how can you live with it in a way that's going to be pro-social and not cause danger to others in the future? That's the big question. Does it help you understand what pushes somebody to become violent, um, commit murder, become a serial killer? I suppose, what are the causes or correlates or factors um, that might um, do that? Well, there are lots of there are lots of risk factors for violence, as we've already said. But I do think that one of the things that comes across very strongly to me in the work that I've done is the is unresolved childhood trauma and distress. And I think it's worth laboring this a little bit because nobody's suggesting for a moment that this excuses people who've done horrible things. And it is also the case that not everybody who's exposed to childhood trauma and abuse will go on to become violent. Far from it. Nevertheless, it does look as though for some people, perhaps some vulnerable people, exposure to a lot of kind of childhood adversity. So that might be having a parent with a mental illness, having a parent in prison, physical abuse, neglect, emotional neglect, these kind of risk factors seem to be risk factors for the, for the kind of later states of mind which might then push you over into violence. So what we're arguing in the book is we need to do much more for parental mental health and we also need to do much more for children who are traumatised. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. You also research at gender and violence. So you write that women commit 5% of all homicides in the UK and globally. 
So why are the majority of murderers men? Well, this is a Nobel Prize-winning question, Linda. And if I were able to answer that, I know I'd be very excited. But I, I think, and it really is a puzzle because, of course, the vast majority of people with a Y chromosome will never kill anyone. Homicide is a very low base rate effect、uh, event. The fact that it doesn't seem that way is because every single one is reported, and that's rightly so because it's a disaster for the individuals, everybody involved, tragedy and dreadful. But actually, it's a very rare event and a Very unusual way for people to break the criminal law, and most people with a Y chromosome will not do it. So, quite why eighty-five percent or ninety-five percent of those who do kill have a Y chromosome is an interesting question. And at least one one a number of answers have been: is is there something about men that's a bit more vulnerable? Uh, perhaps they're more vulnerable to substance misuse, more vulnerable to various kinds of paranoid mental illness. But it may be that women are more resilient. It may be that there's something about feminine gender roles that helps protect women against using violence as a solution to, to emotional conflict. I'm looking forward to you winning、uh, the equivalent prize <laughs> for for some of these answers.、Um, you describe in the book、uh, putting the patient in the chair by the window and yours by the door because you stick by.、Uh, you describe it as lure. Never let the patient block your exit. You've also been shoved over, and there are some really tense moments、um, in the book. We won't have time to go through all of these stories, but what was it like to treat Tony? So that's the story you start with,、yeah. the composite story of a serial killer. So just、um, you know, just tell us what you learned、um, from treating Tony, who was serving three life sentences. Yes, and、uh, he was a man who became mentally unwell in prison, and then was transferred to a secure psychiatric hospital for treatment. And I think what I learned is how careful you have to be when exploring painful and difficult issues. And that may sound desperately obvious, but actually, it's easy—it's easy to go in too quickly and too deep. What I've learned as a psychotherapist is we have to to pace the work, and not push too much on people's defences, not expose people too quickly. When I was a junior trainee, I would ask people about what they'd done without really thinking about how disturbing that might be for them. And I think what I've learned since is that it's important to go carefully and also to be mindful that、um, if you cause somebody pain, they may react with anger. Anger is often a first sign that somebody's in pain. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're violent or cruel. It's just that anger is is sometimes the first sign that somebody is in deep, deep pain. And being thoughtful about that is a really important part of the task of training as a therapist. From that story,、um, what would you like for us to to take away? I think one of the things that struck me in reading it was, and I think it came through in the various other stories as well, is that、um, when someone commits a violent act—a murder, serial killer, or other acts—their own identity changes profoundly, and so the lives which are affected. Is is their victim as well as the perpetrator? So it'd be good to get a sense from you as to what you would like us to take away from the story of Tony. Well, what I'd like people to take away from the story of Tony is that people can't always be defined just by their actions. 
that even the killing of three people, which is a dreadful thing, that doesn't necessarily tell us all there is to know about a person. And that actually, if you just write off a person who's killed repeatedly as, oh, well, he's a serial killer, that you're going to miss out on the fact that he's not, a, he's not serial killing all day, every day. He's not thinking about killing all day, every day. That people, when people kill, they kill in very specific contexts. And often people who've killed are people who are, are thoughtful about what they've done and want a chance to think about it. Although it's not always comfortable for them. And, um, but they know that probably they have to come to terms with what they've done. So I think what I really want people to take away from the story of Tony, but not just Tony, all the cases that we describe is how important it is to give people who've done scary things a space to explore their humanity and reconnect with the pro-social values that we all think are important to a safe society. We need to allow them to join, not just exclude them all the time. It was striking that most of the patients in your stories responded um, to treatment, but not all, including two who are not murderers from, I think it was the, the stalker and uh, the person who was um, watching um, porn. Child pornography. That's right. Child pornog- downloading child pornography. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Why, why, um, you know, be good to, to uh, get your take on why. Well, one, I, I wanted to, uh, obviously Eileen and I wanted to include a full range of different kinds of offences and offenders. As I said earlier on, homicide is actually a very rare event in, in every average year. We only have about 600 homicides and very few of them will necessarily come to secure psychiatric care or, and very, only a, sm- only a small percentage will have mental health problems. So, so I, we wanted to include other kinds of offence that people like me tend to get involved in. So stalking is one. And I particularly wanted to include a female stalker because I've been struck, the work that I've done in female prisons, by the numbers of women who are serving sentences for stalking behaviour, which seems to be a bit difficult to treat. And stalking behaviours are quite difficult to treat, I think. And there's quite a lot of debate about how best to encourage somebody who's stalking to give up that behavior. And then the downloading of child pornography, I was keen to touch on because it is a massive, massive problem. We have millions and millions of people looking at pornography. And of those millions and millions of people, quite a significant number are are looking at child pornography. And some of them are downloading it. And a few, only a sub fraction of them are getting caught. And the courts are very busy dealing with people who are downloading pornography, child pornography, and we need to have a think about what to do with them. But uh, the other thing to just go back to your point is that I wanted also to make it clear that although it's my experience that if we offer people help, they often will take it. Not everybody will take it. Not everybody will take the chance. Some people say, no, I'm not interested. I don't have a problem. It's your problem, not my problem. And, you know, there's not much I can do about that. And I and my colleagues can do about that. But, but so I wanted to be true to the fact that, you know, that you can't always help everybody. There are probably some people for whom it may not be possible to help and, and ch- get them to change their minds for the better. One of your stories is about somebody who suffers from narcissistic personality disorder. I think you write that everyone in their teenage years goes through a streak of that, but hopefully comes out the other side. Sure. Uh, it'd be good to, uh, to get you to yeah. tell us that story and what we should take away. 
Well, I, I think narcissism and narcissistic personality disorders become a very a growth interest in the last sort of ten years or so, and I think that that's you know that's there's lots of reasons for that, but at least one is uh, is because. Um, a lot of this is about self-presentation and the stories we tell of ourselves. And arguably, narcissism is when we get so preoccupied with our sense of self that we lose sight of the reality of other people's selfhoods. And a lot of, and, and so there's a, I think there is a kind of ordinary, normal developmental narcissistic stage that people do grow out of as they grow a more of a social self. But I think the pathological version of this is people who really don't see other people as real, where other people are just have walk on parts in their particular personal drama. And the one of the, again, the $64,000 questions is whether you can help such people become less narcissistic and more aware of other people's minds. And there are some kinds of therapies out there, which we think may be, may be hopeful in helping people become a bit more aware of, of, of seeing other people as people. You're right. There's quite a lot of interest in this area. And you write about it, that maybe some high performing people have a sort of dash of this. Are there any kind of warning signs people should be looking for? <laughs> and, you know. Well, and I, I think the, the point about it is whether that dash of narcissism, which can be associated with a kind of charisma and a kind of, you know, sort of willingness to take up leadership and a kind of sort of hopefulness, um, and about a kind of energy, if that's balanced with compassion, with self-reflection, intelligence, an idea of social relationships and the importance of social relationships, then that narcissism could be turned to good purpose. I think what we're worried about is when you've got a personality structure where there's only narcissism and there's not much else. And there's a kind of emptiness behind the very brittle, grandiose facade. And a lot of workers in this field, researchers in this field, argue that behind a brittle, grandiose, I'm the greatest and you all are losers facade is a kind of emptiness, a kind of vulnerability, a kind of, a kind of gap where a person should be and a gap where personal relationships should be. And of the stories that you tell, um, we won't have time, as I said, unfortunately, to go through them. Is there um, another one that you would like to to highlight, um, perhaps not a favorite, but one that you think our listeners should uh, have a view, have a sight of? Well, there's one. I think that um, the story of Gabriel is one that I and I spent a lot of time on because it's about a young man who comes to this country as a refugee from a war-torn country in Africa and has undergone all sorts of traumas as a child and as a as a migrating refugee gets to this country and struggles struggles with life here and unfortunately becomes mentally unwell and in the context of a mental illness you know a very serious mental illness um, attacks somebody and thankfully doesn't doesn't hurt them but doesn't kill them but causes enormous alarm and distress and what comes out of Gabriel's story I think for me is partly that we need to look behind labels of mental illness to look at sometimes the trauma behind mental illness but also sometimes it's important just to keep going and and just to remember that this is a person who they may look or different to you, they may sound different to you, but they may well have very similar interests. The things that move them and are important to them may be very similar to the ones that are important to you. So it's something about keeping an open mind and keeping keeping on staying put even when things are difficult. That's an important part of That's partly what I'd like people to take away from Gabriel's story. It struck me that you described he wore a cap 
um, for almost all of your initial sessions. And then it was a moment um, when he removed it and you could see the scar um, on his head. I, you know, it was a very, I thought a very, um, a very visual way of capturing the breakthrough that you had with him in that story. And that's really what, again, what Eileen and I have tried to do in the book is to try and present in a kind of almost, almost like short films on, pa- on a page with images and words to convey the kind of people that I meet and how they are very far from the kind of grim monsters that are often put out there on show, the stories that people tell, the way that people talk about people who've killed repeatedly or the people who've killed when mentally ill. Sometimes the way we talk about them is very, it's pretty cruel and pretty heartless. And I, what I was really hoping is that people would come with me and come and meet some of these people and see that they, that we have perhaps more in common than, than you might think. And that, although that's a scary idea, actually that's also a potentially hopeful idea that actually perhaps we could look and find the more pro-social, the more hopeful parts of this person, see what they could do in the future. Mm. So you write in the book, a lot of people ask you this, so I'm going to ask you this as well, because I think um, I think our listeners would um, be wondering, just as I was, which is, how do you deal with your negative emotions when you are treating these offenders? Well, it's a it's a very important part of the training to anticipate them. I think the first step is to acknowledge that they're there. I mean, it, what would be fatal is to some, somehow pretend that they're not there or even to assume that one shouldn't have painful or difficult feelings when dealing with matters that are painful and difficult. I, I mean, it's entirely reasonable to feel rather disturbed by hearing people talk about having done horrible things or talk about people who are frightening or whatever it happens to be. So I think the first thing is to normalize those emotions. And then in the training, what we do is we spend a lot of time reflecting on those emotions. And just into my mind, what I tell myself is that this is to do with the work. I'm having these emotions because I'm doing this work. So there's nothing strange about that. Um, and in, in trying to do good work, I try to do good work on my own emotions. And um, the important thing is not to take them in, not for that not to become the focus of the work. If the work was to become all about my emotions, then we would have lost sight of the, of what I was doing there. But I need, what I, what I know is that it's very important that I need a place where I go and process my experience. And not only do I do that still with other colleagues, but I also provide those kind of reflective spaces for colleagues who do this work. So we have somewhere to process what we feel about the stories we hear. I think in uh, at least a couple of the stories you mention not quite liking the person, and it's it's the it's the sort. I think I'm thinking of the uh, the last story, David, um, where he just rubbed you the wrong way, and at several points in the story, you just say, "All right, this GP has come to me. He's yeah. uh, doing microaggressions against me. <laughs> yeah. I can't focus on that." Any tips? Because I I, yes. I think regardless of your walk of life, that that, that might be not unfamiliar. Yes. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's true. And uh, pro- pro- although perhaps many other people are not wishing that they're back in Broadmoor at that point. But I think the most important thing is, is that I have found is to remember that if I'm feeling irritated with someone, the chances are that there's something going on in that person that's irritating to them. There's something that's getting under their skin. And it may well be painful. And it may well be that if they're getting snippy, it's because you're approaching something that's painful or difficult. 
And so the important thing is not to take it personally, but to just take a step back and think about what might be going on here. Why is this conversation difficult? Is there something about what we're talking about that is painful or difficult for you? It sounds as though um, perhaps there's something something about what's happening here between us that's that's annoying you, and something about being about just being ready to explore that if you can. And finally, Gwen, you write that seventy percent of people in UK prisons are estimated to have at least two mental health issues, ranging from depression to substance misuse and addiction or psychosis. You describe the mental health issue as a crisis in prisons. What would you like to um, see done about that? Well, I'd like people who don't need to be in prison to be diverted away from prison. So, for example, we need many more psychiatric beds. We've closed a lot of psychiatric beds and um, we find ourselves in a situation where men and women with mental health problems who've committed probably fairly minor offences are put into prisons for their own safety. And that is inhumane. In a wealthy country like Britain, the 21st century, we know better. Um, so we should be diverting more people into psychiatric beds and providing more psychiatric beds for people who, who need it. But we also need to be improving the amount of psychological therapies in our prisons, particularly around substance misuse, but also offending. We need to be doing more work with people who committed offences and helping giving people space and time to think about their violence and their cruelty and how they want to live different lives in the future. There is good work that's happening there. I don't want to suggest there isn't good work. There really is good work done by some fantastic colleagues in the prison service, both psychologists, but also prison mental health service in the NHS. But we need so much more, so much more. And it's in all our interests that those men and women get that help. Thank you very much to Dr. Gwen Adshead author of The Devil You Know. Do read it for stories of human cruelty, um, but also of compassion. These stories will stay with you. And thank you all uh, for tuning in. I'm Linda Yu, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world... And whatever you're doing, right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.